All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Adam Hill. This interview blew me away and I know it will help you if you're struggling with addiction and are vices in your own life. It was never part of Adam Hill's life ambition or his genetic constitution to wear a Speedo in public, let alone compete in a triathlon. For the first three decades of his life, he was a poster child for non-athleticism, obsessively unhealthy habits and an intense fear of, well, everything. Yet at this age of 33, with a physique that could only be described as a Sasquatch with a dad bod, he put aside his insecurities and took his first step towards an outrageous dream to qualify for the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii. It was a dream shared by nearly every other athlete in the triathlon world, but it was only reserved for the top 1% of athletes in the sport. And in this sport, Adam had exactly zero experience. In Shifting Gears, Adam's new book, he shares his harrowing, inspiring and sometimes clumsy story of transformation from the origins of a debilitating anxiety disorder to his battle with alcoholism to his rise to the top of the triathlon world stage. He's now an amateur elite athlete with multiple podium finishes and has earned the distinctions of a USA triathlon All-American and Ironman All-World Athlete. He was featured in the NBC sports series Ironman Quest for Kona which was released in 2017, which showcased his successful attempt to qualify for the Ironman World Championships. Today, Adam is a business executive, coach, speaker and author. Through his triathlon platform, Extra Life Fitness, he provides coaching, guidance and resources to triathletes of all levels. You'll often find him speaking about personal transformation and overcoming anxiety at company events, on podcasts and in other media, usually because they've invited him as he says, and in this very open, honest and frank interview, we discuss anxiety, panic attacks and alcohol, how he went from the addict mindset to the athlete's way of life, how he learned to use his anxiety as a superpower in his own life, and so much more. And now, let's get to the interview. As You're the star. <laughs> Honestly, I love the book. It's one of the Thanks. funniest books I've read in a long time, but also so motivational and life-affirming. But for people who maybe don't recognize you as the guy that started in the Mexican Porter Potty and ran the Kona, could you give a quick introduction? How, how should we know Adam? And Because you're going to be on everybody's lips soon. But could you give a quick introduction of who you are and why you're going to become a sensation? Yeah, well, yeah, I was... Uh, so I grew up a spaz, which, you know, not... not I grew up a complete weirdo and, and uh, didn't have you know, a lot of inclination to the sports or anything like that. So I didn't play a lot of sports growing up or anything. So ending up going to Kona and doing an Ironman world championship was not anywhere close to on my radar 
a long time ago. Uh, but I, in college, I developed something of an anxiety disorder and, and it was absolutely debilitating at that time. You know, this was the late nineties and we didn't really talk about mental health a lot. And so mm -hmm. I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I just felt myself having these panic attacks and, uh, that they were so crippling, so debilitating. And, and this anxiety was so overwhelming and really the only way that I knew to treat it or really the only thing that helped, the thing that made me feel really good was alcohol. So I leaned into that and I became kind of a, 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 a twofold problem, which was, you know, an anxiety disorder mixed with alcohol and they never mix well. So I became an alcoholic and uh, my life very quickly and over a long period of time became unmanageable and out of control. And I, um, yeah. And, and so you know, fast forward to a lot of pain, a lot of struggle that, that I'd, I'd gone through and a lot of attempts to really numb the pain with alcohol. After I got sober, I really realized, and I know I'm giving a very nutshell version of this, but we can get into any part of this that you like. But mm -hmm. uh, after I got sober, I realized that I could achieve things that I didn't know I could achieve in the past. I never thought that I could get sober. And that was a real important concept for me. And uh, so with that, after about a year of sobriety, I decided to look at other things that I didn't think that I could do before to elevate my life and continue to level up. And my physical and my physical fitness was a natural, uh, a natural follow up to my mental health. And that's where I started getting into Ironman. And I really wanted to, I really wanted to work toward achieving that Ironman world championship goal. And uh, four years later, I did. I mean, I loved it in the book, like, you know, you start, it's the humor, it's the the detail, but it's also the, you know, you, you sound like a normal person in the book, you know, you're not saying and going, oh, I got up at four o'clock and I run 50 miles a day, kind of, you know, you're kind of explaining your worries, your nerves, your, you really go into it and you give a very open and honest account. And I, I really kind of related to that because when I've suffered from OCD, I've had obtrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. I can remember the dark places that, you know, you go into, but what was it that was, you know, you talk a lot in the book about just being worried about everything and anything. What was it really that you started noticing when you were younger? What was it that kind of, you know, you talked about being a mediocre sports player because you didn't want to step out into the light. Sure. What was the sort of things you did that you noticed that you were struggling with before you started fighting alcohol in college? I know it's about that's 50 a, questions there. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great question because that that's one of the things I try to wrap my head around is, is, is how to communicate to people that it's okay to feel this way and, and, and know that everybody kind of experiences this to some degree. Mm. But the, the, what I really initially noticed were very subtle things, things like when I would play baseball instead of, you know, they always say lean into the pitch and, and swing away. Well, I would always lean out and, and lean in, lean away from, the thing that was fearful, or I would, uh, uh, you know, be, be shy or, or very socially awkward trying to talk to people I didn't know or girls or things like that. And, and things like, uh, the social dynamics of school in general, which are always, you know, which are always hard for kids, but they seemed elevated for me, you know, trying to approach people, that kind of thing. Those were a little bit of the, of, of those subtle cues that, mm -hmm led me to believe that, you know, or, or I realize actually in retrospect were, were problematic for me. Cause it's certainly something that you struggle with into it. It's like when you don't have maybe the, somebody to go and speak to, 
you know, back mm-hmm. in, especially when I was younger, when you were younger, you, it wasn't really talked about. It wasn't really right. acceptable to say I'm struggling. You know, males were meant to be dominant, masculine, and take on the world and just get on with their own problems. And I think that, thankfully, it's gone a lot better now. But you know, you've you were very open about panic attacks and about how you'd feel great. It gave you the Dutch conference when you were drinking, mm-hmm. and then you'd hate yourself in the morning. How did you notice this? affecting your life was it the fact that you weren't living how you wanted did you feel like you're living in a shadow version of the adam that you knew you could be because the adam now is amazing you know i can see how you're changing lives but what was that adam like before the mexican border party kona (laughs) this amazing transformation you've been through yeah it it was definitely a a a long-term identity crisis where it was just trying to manage something I couldn't control. That's how I felt. I just did. I didn't feel like myself and I certainly didn't feel like I was living my values. Uh, taking a step back my, when I, when I had my first panic attack, that was the first indication that I had something that was wrong with me. Hmm. I was essentially studying for an exam in college. I was by myself in my apartment, you know, studying for an exam and, you know, just, I, I hadn't been drinking, hadn't been doing anything else at the time, just normal day. And all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks, this, this insane amount of dread and panic and, and paralyzing fear over something that was completely irrational. I was afraid at that moment that I was HIV positive and there was no reason for me to think that it was just this weird hike weird instance of hypochondria where I wrap my head around that because of this weird math problem that I'd, I'd solved in my mind. And I, uh, and I just fell paralyzed to the ground and I was so certain that that was the case. Um, and finally, when I got checked out by the doctor and they realized there's nothing, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. It was like this sense of relief. But then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it came back as something else that next time it was, you know, cancer or the next time it was some, obscure disease or something like that, that, that would always, or, you know, that I was somehow going to get arrested for something. There were always these irrational fears that would, that would take me over. And I never wanted to tell anybody about it because even Mm -hmm. in that certain state where I was so certain of that fear, I knew that I felt crazy. It just felt crazy to me. And, and so the only way that I could deal with that was to continue drinking. And then my dependency on drinking became so much worse. And I didn't like myself as a drunk. I mean, I don't think that anybody really does, but when it numbs the, when, when you're so, so in need of trying to numb that pain and, and, and push down and, and subdue that anxiety or that depression or whatever it may be that, that people are struggling with, that becomes the acceptable alternative. And for a while it worked for, for a while. I mean, the first time I had a sip of alcohol, you know, it was when I was 17 years old, I was, I was right on the beach, like, you know, just right on a cliffside in a, in a college town. And I took my first sip of alcohol and immediately my, my worries and anxieties went away and I was the life of the party and I could talk to girls and everything was great. And so I had no reason to believe at that first experience that it was going to be a problem. I only had a reason to believe that it was going to be my solution. And so I continued on with it for, for years and, and, then the panic attacks happened. Then it became fun with problems. And then over time, the fun went away and it just became problems. And, uh, and I started to live this double life where I was just trying to manage the day to day, where I was trying to manage my anxiety and get to the next drink, uh, around a series of rules that I would set for myself. 
I set these rules so that I could convince myself that I had control and that I didn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I'm not going to drink before 5 p.m. because if I drink before 5 p.m., that's that's problem drinking. Or if I drink on the weeknights or during work days, then that's a problem. Or And the one rule that I would never break was this rule of drinking and driving because I hated people who drank and drove. I hated it. They, how, how could these people live on a planet where they're, where they're putting peop, other people's lives at risk? Uh, I was so, you know, I, so I, I didn't do that for a very long time until one day I did. And I was in a blackout. I was out of control. And I... Uh, and I got in a DUI accident and the shame that I felt around that um, when I was sitting in the back of a, of, a, of a police car trying to put the pieces together of what I had just done, um, I, was, I realized that I was no longer just a risk to myself, um, and, which I was okay with, but I was a risk to other people. And that I, I broke my last rule and, and I realized at that moment that I had zero control of my life, zero and that the only way that I could, you know, get past that was either to remove myself from this world, or I had to really, really lean into getting help. And uh, that was the choice I was making in in the jail cell that night. Because you're you don't hold back any punches in the book. You really kind of describe how you've you know that journey and that kind of transformation. And when I mm-hmm. I felt a lot of similarities between us. You know, I had also been through where. You know, you don't feel like you're part of the social scene. You don't feel like you fit into the group until you start drinking. And then before you know it, the buzz comes in and you're like, it's almost like you're ramped up 50 times and you go away and do things. And then at the end of the night, you're thinking, I feel horrible. And you're hungover the next day. Was it a point that you started looking going, okay, this has got a problem. When did it become, you know, you were saying fun with problems. What was the first mm-hmm. problems you were noticing? Were they health benefits or were you waking up and going, oh, geez, what happened the night before? Or what was the first things like? Was it bad relationships with family members? What was the first things you noticed? Yeah, the first things I, I really noticed were that uh, I, I was just starting to feel like I was waking up hungover, not feeling, not feeling great. And I was starting to get into small legal problems. Like I would be outside of our apartment drinking a beer and then a police officer would come by and say, Hey, what's in the bottle? And then I would get in trouble. I would get ticketed for it and I'd have to handle that. And, uh, uh, so, so there, there were very small things that would happen like that, uh, that were happening around me, but happening, happening in accelerating progression for me. And when I first started drinking, I, I, People used to call me the iron liver because I, I would never get hung over and it was almost celebrated to the extent that I just, I didn't get hung over. I would wake up early the next morning and I would just be able to go. And so I felt good. And that did not help my, my, uh, my problem drinking later because that was the whole experience that I wanted to chase. And that was the whole experience. My, my broken brain was trying to get back to was that feeling of, of feeling good and having no consequences. But the consequences started coming more and more. And then, you know, from there, from from those small legal issues, it, it started to be that that feeling of, oh, man, what happened last night? I would start to black out. And then, of course, because of the blacking out, my anxiety in the morning would be much worse. And I would have panic attacks in the morning thinking, what, what just happened? Well, then, you know, I would have to kind of white knuckle it until I got to my next drink later in the day so that I could subdue mm-hmm. that feeling again. 
And so those were the, those were the initial inklings that I was having a problem, but really for a lot of uh, people who, d- who develop problem drinking or alcoholism, and this is true for me, by the time I recognized those symptoms or by the time they meant enough for me to want to change them, it was, I was well into the depths of that addiction and it was going to be harder to break for me. Because I mean, I love the honesty in the book, and you know, you've talked about, it and it, it it's amazing how sort of frank you can be about it. Because a lot of people go, yeah, yeah, I was fine, I had it, you know, and it's almost like a, a rite of passage, isn't it? You know, you say yeah. to a guy, oh, he's just out drinking. That's what college students do. But it does get to that point where you've, I mean, I don't know for you, but I felt like I was numbing the real in, and I was trying to betray a version of who I was. But I noticed it affected my mental health. You know, you walk mm-hmm. past people who are laughing, you start thinking, are they laughing at me and stuff like that? Did you find it started affecting your mental health that it was almost like you needed the alcohol to function as the Adam that you were trying to be? Yeah. In, in fact, the, the term functioning alcoholic is always kind of like an oxymoron or a misnomer for me because mm-hmm. a lot of alcoholics need alcohol to function. <laughs> and that's really the, the way it, it worked for me was I considered myself a functioning alcoholic. And that was one of the things that that defined why I, I told myself I didn't have a problem. I was able to go to work. I was able to do that, but really that was, that was a a result of the way that I was just this, this faux way of trying to manage my life through, through drinking. But, but certainly it did affect my mental health, my decisions. And I think for me, it stunted my growth and my personal development to the extent that I just, I, I didn't pursue you know, growth in any way. And I realized way later on after I got sober, how important growth is for me, how mm-hmm. important that is to maintaining fulfillment in my life. And at that time I was just feeding this downward spiral of non-fulfillment of everything else through drinking because I just wasn't going anywhere and I was only doing more damage to myself. So my mental health was really suffering at that point. The anxiety was worse. And on top of that, I was, I was breeding this, this ego that was, uh, that was this false sense of, of control. And so it definitely wasn't good for my mental health at all. Cause like speaking to you just now, um, reading the book and watching your amazing videos on YouTube and stuff, I can't imagine that Adam at all because you, you know, you're, you seem to have this lust for life. You have this beautiful family. You're going out and doing these amazing things. And, you know, I can think back to stupid things I've done when I was drunk or really upset and I had to go on antidepressants and things like that. But what was it at that point? Was it the the incident, like with the drink driving and the stigma that came off it? Or was it being breathalyzed in front of neighbors and stuff? Mm-hmm. What was that point that you just thought, no, nah, I need more than this? Can you remember it? Or was it just a sort of gradual, I need more for life, I'm not going to do this? What was that thing that made you just go, no? Nah, I need more than this. Yeah, it was it was definitely that incident with the drunk driving that that was the trigger for the first transformational experience. And that first transformational experience wasn't really a sense of I need more than this. It was more a sense of I I only have two choices in this, and I my choices are to either end my life or to actually get the help that I I need and be all in on it. Uh, thing there were things that prevented me. Because even, even long before that, I knew that I had a problem. I knew that I, I needed help. I needed, and I needed that assistance, but there was still that fear of wanting to go and get that. 
because I always thought, well, my family needs me. How am I going to be good to my family if I'm in treatment? That's very selfish of me to go in and mm-hmm. try and get treated for this for this thing. And 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 so I always looked at it as selfish to want to take care of myself in that way. And it, when when in reality, I was I was no good to my family at that point whatsoever. So that point where I had the DUI, I was sitting in the cell thinking that that just coming to the realization that I did I had no control over my life that I wasn't good to anybody and that I was torn in these two directions and you know by grace or whatever you want to call it I chose the direction of getting help and I chose to I chose to put that first in my life and that was really just a way of of saying saying this is so that I could function as a human being and start to repair the damage that I've done and that was the first transformation so for that first year and one of the things that a lot of the uh, more experienced sober people in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program I went through, uh, what they had told to me was don't make any major life changes for a year, stay with the program, do that and make that the first priority in your life. And so I did just that. And when I got to a year of sobriety, I'd remembered that and I, but I, but I'd interpreted it as, as when you get to a year, make a major life change. <laughs> so I, I, so that's when I, I looked at my, what I would call my second transformation. I, I had this psychological, I had this spiritual transformation of, of realizing that I could get sober with the help of a community, with the help of a framework. Mm-hmm. And it was so, it was so amazingly, amazingly transformative in my life because I realized that I was able to not only apply that to the drinking, but I apply that to the anxiety that I had felt and, and, and somehow come to terms with that and rise above that in some ways, not overcome it. I still live with it but rise above it so that I could function better as a, as a human being. I realized that, well, what's next is, and that came to the sense of, of my, of my physical health and just wanting to, wanting to realizing that, you know, maybe there is more to this life than just, you know, what I've, what I've been doing. Cause when I was down at a low ebb, I couldn't imagine making a change like that. I certainly would have thought I'm going to go and run an Ironman. (laughs) I loved, I loved the way you kind of just went, yeah, I see that. I'm going to go do that. You know, was it part like how did you start going through that journey? You know, did you have like regrets about what you had previously done as you started this transformation and you go through the stages of Alcoholic Anonymous? Do mm-hmm. they, I mean, I know you talk in the book how you can't really go into that journey because you don't want to kind of make it, you know, draw like, you know, you don't want to highlight it for people who are yeah. going through it. What do you think, I mean, how did you deal with the person you were becoming, but also looking back and going, oh, I really messed up there. Oh, I really did that. I really got in trouble there. Did you Mm -hmm. struggle coming to terms with it? Because, I mean, I've looked back and gone, I deeply regret this. But they say, oh, you have to go through it to become the person you are now. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Did you struggle looking back and having regrets at all? Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, I still, I still struggle with the idea of regretting it. Something that, that was a pivot point in my life for something that became better. Mm-hmm. And so I've come to terms with the fact that I can deeply regret what happened there and be grateful for the circumstances that arose out of, out of it. Um, because there, because I've lived with shame all my life. Shame has just been something that I've, I've lived with it. And it, it's been a part of that anxiety that I've had, which is, is to 
you know, when I, when I drank, I felt shame because I was drinking to resolve this thing and I knew it was bad and it went against my values. And then of course I went to the, the deepest steps that I, I never thought that I could do, which was the DUI. And there was such a deep amount of shame with that for, for a long period of time. And I will say that, you know, going through Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and doing the steps, I, that's where I, I did have a deep sense of, of healing through that. And I was able to kind of come to terms with that, where I could look back on that and, and say that, that the experience in and of itself was, uh, was a negative experience. It wasn't, you know, it was something I do regret for the people that were involved in and, and, uh, and, and for those that I've harmed, even throughout my, you know, throughout my history of drinking, my wife, my family, those who I've, I've hurt along the way. And I, I realize that I can constantly make amends for that. And that that's, that in and of itself is not shameful. That is more of just making things right and trying to, trying to work to make those amends. It's um, yeah, but it, it is, it is one of those challenging things that, that, that I deal with, but I know that now at least I am an alcoholic. I know that I have no control over alcohol and I'm grateful mm. now that I don't pick up a drink. And I, 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 I realize that that is, that is a superpower in itself to not be able to pick up a drink now and an anxiety and an anxiety for all of its negatives, for all of the problems that it might cause. There are superpowers that come with that as well. I think for every negative thing, there is a yin and a yang. There's a positive that could come out of it or there's a negative. If I went back out and I just continued drinking because I was so shameful of that experience, well, then I wouldn't have done any healing and that would be no good for the world. But if I tried to take that positive out of that, that experience, then, you know, it, 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 at least, uh, it at least changes the way that my trajectory would go and, and the trajectory of those that I might touch. I love that answer. I mean, it's... It, it blows me away the the openness in the book. You know, when you were talking about suicide, you're talking about the stigma, the upset you had caused, and to, to be so frank and open, I think you would help. That's why I think the book is so helpful to people, not just who are wanting to do uh, Ironman, but people who want to change their mm -hmm. lives, who are wanting to leave addiction or be better people. And I love the fact that you can talk so beautifully about, you know, yes, I can look back and regret it. But it's like you're saying, your history doesn't need to be your future. And mm -hmm. I mean, I've been in dark places where you think, oh, I'd be better if I just went. I can't change. I, you know, it's too painful. Yeah. What was that first few steps? Did you struggle at all? To, or did you sort of fall back? Did you to relapse? Or did you have that? Because like, I, I know in the book you talk about smoking the depression away. You, you, know, yeah. you felt better when you had cigarettes and stuff. How, if you did make a mistake during that journey, how did you recalibrate, reset? Because this new Adam is an amazing person who's changing so many lives and helping so many. But how did you think, no, that's just a little slip up. I'm going to be it. I'm going to continue on and not mm -hmm. think, oh, well, that's just me. That's who I am. Make it part of my story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I, th I think that's one of the things is, was to acknowledge is to acknowledge that I am, am not perfect, that I am human. I think one of one of the reasons I fell into a trap of shame and anxiety and on all of those things before was was that is that I was striving for perfection and I was always failing. That's just something that my mind goes to and realizing coming to the terms that that I'm going to make mistakes, that I'm going to slip up, and that's okay as long as we reframe those and as long as those mistakes 
you know, as long as I, I don't go down a path of, 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 of continuing to hurt other people or, or anything like that, mm-hmm. then that's, then that's, you know, in, in sobriety, I mean, I, I made tons of mistakes and fortunately I never had to pick up a drink again. You know, fortunately today I don't have a desire to drink. And, and in the past 10 years that I, since my, since my DUI accident, I haven't picked up another drink, which is a real blessing. Um, but I also remember that I'm human and I, I, that is always something that is on the possibility, even if I don't have a desire today, that, that one day that desire may come back and I have to be ready for that. And, and, um, but, and I have to manage it just today. So, you know, and then getting, getting into triathlon, I mean, I realized that that was one of the beauty beauties of that sport for me of, of, of starting with that sport is that it's such a long event. And I mean, there's so much trading involved and there's, there's three sports involved that you're bound to make mistakes. You're bound to have something go wrong. And so it's the perfect supplement to sobriety for me because when, when I'm doing it, I experience things that I can control, but I also experience these things that are out of my control and I have to accept those things and adapt. And, and so it's the perfect balance of that serenity prayer, you know, which, you know, is, is that, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So it's like the perfect practice of that. Um, but yeah, accepting that fact that I'm, I'm not perfect and, that I'm going to be clumsy is and, and accepting that we are imperfect is, is very important. I love it. I love how you sort of open and honest and sort of how you can see this from another level. You know, you can, mm-hmm. oh, I hate myself for that pun, uh, but you know, you can actually <laughs> understand this because a lot of people are probably going through this just now going, oh, I've just had a drink. Oh, I've woken up and I'm hungover. What helped you through that stage? You know, were you journaling? Were you, like going and staying with friends where you eliminating bad habits. And then, you know, how did you think, okay, I'm going to change this habit and I'm going to start training. I'm going to start running. I'm going to cycle, etc. How did you start eliminating the stuff that was holding you back to change, who, mm-hmm. you know, the, to who you're going to become? So when I first, when I first got sober, that the, the absolute key there was the community. And I mean, it, for me, it was AA for anybody else. It, it could be anything that it, as long as that community has people that have, have the experience of what you want to achieve, that there's people there that have what you want. And so I surrounded myself. And this is true of any kind of success kind of formula, whether it be sobriety or success in business. Uh, and, you know, it's always said, surround yourself with the people that have what you want, the, 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 the five people that you want to be, that sort of thing. So every single day for that first year, the first couple of years, really, I went to uh, meetings every single day to surround myself with it. Even if I didn't want to, even if I wasn't feeling good, even if that wasn't the case, I just, I went to a meeting and I made it first in my life because I realized at that time, the mistakes that I made when I tried to get sober in the past before that were that I would not be putting it first in my life. I would be saying, well, I, I, if I have this event, I can't make a meeting or I, I can't get a sponsor because they're going to cut me too hard on me or whatever. This time I put it absolutely first in my life and I did whatever they told me. And I know for people out there that may be in the midst of, of problem drinking or be questioning themselves, this themselves, they may hear that. And if they're anything like me, they'll, they'll hear that. And then they'll get that twinge of like fear and that twinge of fear of like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't, 
you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. Or it's going to be that twinge of fear always precedes one of two decisions, the decision to go back into the comfort or the decision to go away from that and into something that will contribute to growth. And I would just, I would challenge people to just, to just jump right into that, that experience of growth. And I'll, I'll give an example of that um, as far as how it relates to the second transformation that I went into the Ironman journey, because the first time that I saw the Ironman world championship was I was in the midst of my anxiety. It was probably like 15 or 16 years ago. I, I was, you know, still drinking and, 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 and all of that. And I was watching TV one day. I saw the beautiful landscape of Hawaii just appear on the screen. I saw, you know, these people running and then the, the, the announcer came on and started talking about these amazing distances, 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 miles of biking and a 26 mile marathon on top of all of that. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. How many days is it going to take those people to do that? And he said, all in one day. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> one day. <laughs> and I, I heard that and I, and then I watched all these visions of people crossing the finish line with smiles on their faces. And they were, they were people from, of all shapes and sizes of all ages and all of this thing. And I was just so inspired. And I was like, wow, how cool would it be to do that? And then that, that little light just shined in me and it was like, oh my gosh, that would be amazing. What if I could do that? And then that twinge of fear that I just talked about came into my brain where it's like, oh, I wouldn't want to do that. And that fear uh, manifested as this self-doubt that said, you can't do that. You're an alcoholic. You're drinking all the time. You're smoking cigarettes. Look at you. You're out of shape. You're overweight. You're doing all this. You know, you're, you're not, you're not an iron man. Go back to feeling sorry for yourself. And so I didn't think about it again. And that was where I leaned into that twinge of fear that was comfort. And, but fast forward to that time when I had a year of sobriety and I had a, I had a stronger mindset. I had all of this uh, what they say AA in my brain now, where it was like all of this uh, recovery, uh, the steps, and and I felt more empowered. My mindset had changed, and I, while I was doing that, while I was spending a year, I was thinking, how can I better elevate my life now? How can I start to grow, and how can I do so in a way that's physically empowering? Uh, and that's when the Iron Man popped back into my head, and I had that same feeling of excitement. I had that same feeling of it. Wow, that's so amazing! I remember that, and how cool would it be to do that? And then that twinge of fear came back, and this time, instead of looking at that fear and falling back into comfort with a, an empowered mindset, I turned into it and I said, "Well, what if I could?" And that's what got the snowball going. And so I started really researching it, and uh, and it got it got really exciting. And I started, I was fortunate. I started training the right way and, and I was accountable to it in the same way that I did with sobriety. I found myself in a community of encouraging and supporting people that really led to that structure of accountability that I needed to continue on and persist with it. Yeah. I love, I love how you, you just blow me away with each other. Like I, I was almost struggling <laughs> to think of a next question because I was too busy listening and going, whoa, like, it's amazing to see that you you can be so frank with us because I know this will be helping so many people who are sitting just now thinking, I don't deserve to change. You know, I'm just I'm just one of life's losers. I'm a bad person. I don't need to do this or that. And I think that's the problem is we don't go and say to guys, look, you can change. 
this you don't need to be doing this there is options there are things to, you know you can go and work on the problems that are doing it no matter how mm-hmm. dark no matter how desperate it is there's always things we can do for one another but it's only recently we've started this change so how did you start thinking to go from the addict's mindset to the athlete's mindset to wanting to wear a speedo 24 <laughs> 7 you know, i love the bit in the book when you're talking about the first time you order a speedo you know it's when you're 13 and it's a time you don't want to be wearing a speedo when you're noticing girls <laughs> and all that sort of stuff and it's you know you can see the positivity the more positive writing in the book as you start mm-hmm. becoming the adam that you are today but how did you switch from addict to athlete because it's such an amazing transformation that's mm-hmm. that's a good question and, and i would say uh, for me, the two are almost one and the same um, because really I'm, I'm, I'm always an addict in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, that part. I, I never got rid of, I I've always had an obsessive personality and I, and I can't, I can't stop being an obsessive person. So now it just becomes, how can I channel it in the right way and yeah. getting into the, the athletics and it's another great reason why, at least for me, triathlon was so wonderful because it channeled that obsession so well. I mean, what more, how, how much more can you channel obsession better than having to be on a five hour bike ride where you're just constantly doing that? That's, that's obsessive, (laughs) but it was, it was, it was also empowering in the way that, you know, alcohol wasn't, I became a better person. I began to grow. I began to learn that I could do things that I didn't think were possible for me. And, and each one of those things, instead of being a downward spiral, like the addiction to alcohol and the obsession with alcohol was, or the anxiety, it became a virtuous circle, an upward spiral, one that I kept improving on and, and leaning into those personal growth things, you know, really, really, really helped me on that front. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say too, with regard to something you just said about uh, people feeling like they're not worth the change. I think you said something kind of similar to that. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely resonate with that. Because my problems, you know, growing up as a, as, as a youngster, going to college, I mean, all of those were first world problems, man. I mean, let me tell you, I had a privileged life growing up. I had two parents who loved me. Uh, we, we didn't struggle for, you know, financially. We didn't, you know, I was able to go to college. I was able to, to not have that kind of food insecurity that many people have. Yet I still had anxiety. And yet I still had that. I felt like I wasn't worth the change. I felt one of the reasons I felt shame was because I felt like there's no reason for me to feel this way. There's no reason. I look at how good, I mean, I'm, I'm going to school at the beach. How could I feel bad yet? For me, it was hell just because of everything going on in my mind. And I just want to tell that to people because, because everybody is struggling with something, you know, regardless of what status they're in, I mean, or, or, or their economic status or, or what they may be going, going through that they, we're all experiencing something and we all deserve to have validation to those things that we're feeling and, and work on getting empowered through them, not, not, uh, uh, becoming a victim, but growing and becoming empowered so that we can live the best life that we each can live. Every one of us is entitled to that. Could you, I mean, that, that really hit home with me because as I was reading the book, I was remembering who I used to be, you know, when mm-hmm. you felt like your mind was a prison, you felt like, who am I to complain? Because 
I've got three square meals. I've got a loving family. But when there's people yeah. who are going through cancer, abuse, and all these sort of things, and in your head you're going, no, my problems aren't nothing compared to that. But yeah. it's something that's affecting all of us. And we're not we're not told, we're not said like what's going through your mind isn't true. You know, that it's just your brain using information around you or the, what mm. you believe to be the world. The thoughts aren't real. So you act on them or try to numb them with alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. And I mean, I struggled with that for ages, like drinking at weekends. And I'd be sitting in the pub going, I don't want to be here. After a mm-hmm. few beers, ah, well, you know, I'm here, may as well make the most of it. And then I'd be looking forward to it for a couple of days. And then I'd think, what the hell am I doing? And I love yeah. that you were saying there, you know, you change bad habits for good habits. You talk in the book, where is it? I've got, I had to write it down. Anxiety is an overwhelming byproduct of exceptional talent or ability. Unleashing that talent requires daily mindset practice. How did you look at that and go, I'm going to use this as an anxiety superhero. I'm going to reframe anxiety. And instead of it being a, a hindrance, I'm going to go, fuck it. I'm going to make this super, I'm going to become Superman with this. I'm going to use this as a power. I love that. I, I, I certainly don't know how I did it. How do you think you mm-hmm. did it? I think I think it was something that evolved over over time was just that that perception so that I could look back and say okay yeah all of those things that I did um, you know getting into Iron Man and things like that uh, you know how what 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 kind of skills did I use there and then it, it always got me thinking about you know the the comic books we would read as kids when you read about like Superman or or when you read about uh, uh, you know some of these superheroes. For every superpower that they have, you notice that the author in those has some kind of kryptonite or some kind of, you know, some kind mm-hmm. of malady that that stems from. You know, they they fell into you know nuclear waste or something like that. And I'm not saying that that's what we've done, but to a major degree, that's I think what that means in in that kind of in that kind of literature because you look at people and the maladies that they have, um, like things like anxiety, things like depression. A lot of those, you know, are due to being overstimulated in some way within our brains there. And, and it, and the offset of those things tends to come in with creativity, with obsession, with, with those kinds of things that can be either good or bad. Uh, we can use them in, in good ways. And so it was also lots of therapy that I, I mean, I, I've been with the same therapist for over 12 years now, and we've, we've, we've worked through a lot of this kind of stuff where, uh, after realizing that I can't get over anxiety, um, you know, that, that it doesn't go away. It's something that, you know, that's part of who I am. There are things that that, there are tools that I can use to help with anxiety in the moment or over time that I can use to help me stay empowered. But even though I can't get over it or overcome anxiety, it can rise above it. You know, I, I still have panic attacks even today. I, uh, I think about a week ago I had, I had my last, um, uh, you know, I had another, you know, panic attack and, uh, for, for a few weeks that I wasn't sleeping very well, just because it was part of who I am, but I have the tools to, to work with it. The key I think, but I think the key has been was the, once I was able to name it, once I was able to know that I, I have this issue and that it's, it's going to be my roommate essentially, how can we work together? How can I make friends with it? And how can we, how can I utilize it to, to help me become the best version of myself? 
That's why I kind of wish I had this book when I was younger, because <laughs> it was to see that other people were going through it. You know, that I wasn't this weird mm. bull. I wasn't this dark, evil person or whatever. You know, what you were trapped in your head, and it's like you're saying it's the realizing you're going to have it, but why not use it to benefit you? You know, it's like instead of trying to numb it and hide it, why not accept that life could be great by using this as a superpower and i love the fact yeah. that you're talking you know you're open about therapy and stuff and i've tried cognitive behavior therapy you know and it really changed that you know, the thoughts are just there but they don't mean you need to follow them you don't need to actually act on them or you don't need to try hide from them or run, you can just let them pass and meditation and things like that did you find that kind of things helpful you know how did you find going to therapy Therapy was has been good, but it, it is a long game. I mean, it's a very long process to get to build that trust. And the reason I, I I love working with my therapist so much is that she was with me even before I got sober. She so she knows she essentially knows my bullshit. Um, sorry for my language, but she does. <laughs> so so yeah, she knows uh, uh you know she knows what what I've I've been through. She knows when I was manipulating her into thinking I was sober while I was drinking, even though she knew I was drinking and, and all of that stuff. So that fact alone means that I'm working and, and so I could still be accountable to that. And we know each other very well. So that relationship takes a long time to build. So I know, I know that there's, it's, it's challenging when somebody's just kind of starting, well, I want to find a therapist, you know, to, to, to build that relationship. Um, but, but it is, it is, you know, I, I think it's, it's worthwhile to, to really foster that relationship. One thing that really helped for me and this this isn't for somebody that's that's struggling with it now. That that somebody that you know is still in the midst of 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 maybe drinking or, or or struggling. You know, things like anonymity are very important, and that's why I struggle with the talking about my journey through AA. Uh, but what I found is that over time, after I've had a couple of years of sobriety, I realized that for me, and this isn't for everybody, but for me, uh, being open and honest about my story helps me stay accountable. So selfishly. I mean, it, it helps me stay sober. It helps me to continue to do the things that um, um, I need to do, and, and really, really focus and stay obsessed with being sober, and to use my, you know, to use my anxiety superpowers, so to speak, in in a productive way, and not fall back into bad habits. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. I love that. I mean, it's like, because I, I know what that feeling is. Like, it's the imposter syndrome, isn't it? It's like, I'm telling everybody it's fine, but though your life just isn't the way you are. Like, when I started yeah. the podcast, I wasn't living the life of somebody trying to get better. I was talking up a big game, but not living that life. And I had to change that to become, and I love the way that you're using even just sharing your story as that kind of catalyst to keep changing and motivating and helping others by living that life and using that power for yourself and it's it's not selfish it's a great way of doing it and it's i think that's a great thing about you is that you're open about this you know that you're showing people that 
like putting a light in dark places that a lot of people are going, oh no, I can't talk about that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't go and speak to somebody about feeling suicidal, feeling like whatever it is, you know. And I think that's the thing is we have to let people know that there is things you can do. And I think that's the thing that your book will help so many people. You should be super mm-hmm. proud of what you've written because it motivates, it changes, and it's not just, oh, this is swim 20 lengths today. It's how you got there, how you dragged yourself through hell to get to this point. And I was blown away by it. You know, it's not, it's all, I get a lot of books sent to me and it's not often you get really truthful, deep down analysis like this, you know. I highly recommend it to anybody listening, but how did you start making exercise fun, enjoyable and make it consistent, especially after coming off, you know, drinking, smoking, things like that? How did you make it? Like, how did you actually start exercising? Is probably a way better put it, because it it must be a struggle once you you know you've been really unhealthy at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's a great question because when I first started had that when I, well when I had that desire to do an Ironman, um, you know, one of the first things I did was you know I got I got obsessed about it. I I, I knew that I wanted to do the Ironman, and uh, the problem was is that at that time I was injured. I was recovering from a shoulder surgery that ironically was, was the result of aggressive exercise programs that I tried to do in the past. So I would always get in these fits of, I want to get fit. I want to get a six pack. I want to, you know, get big biceps and things like that. And my frame is not built for big biceps or six packs or anything like that. It's just not, but, um, but I would want to do that. And so I would go to the gym and I'd really lift heavy or I'd go out for a run and I'd run as fast as I could for a couple of miles and I'd feel great for that first day. And then the second day I would be sore and feel not as great. And then gradually it would just, you know, I would burn out. And so that was kind of the nature of how I used to work out. And so fast forward to this, this time when I started wanting to train for Ironman, I was injured. I wasn't allowed to run. My doctor wouldn't let me because I was recovering. I, I wasn't allowed to swim obviously because I couldn't rotate my shoulder uh, and I'd really never done much swimming in the past anyway, aside from surfing or, or that kind of stuff. But I, um, uh, but the one thing that I could do was, was bike on a, on a really easy, on a stationary trainer. And so that's where I started. And then I started walking. And so I was forced to scale back to this really easy, really aerobic, uh, training style. And so, and then even reading and that, and then I was also, because I was obsessed with it, I couldn't work out as much as I wanted to. Um, a, it was a blessing in disguise because I, because I wasn't working out uh, and burning myself out. But B, I got to research a lot about like how to train for an Ironman. And I discovered Phil Maffetone, who, who talked about the idea of training with the heart rate, but training with it with only two zones. You have your anaerobic zone and your aerobic zone and the aerobic zone was so ridiculously easy. They train under this heart rate. For me, it was 142. That was the number of beats per minute I could train under. And that happened to be so ridiculously easy that I was practically walking when I first started. And so, um, and so staying disciplined with that and really trusting it and, and having the faith. And I think that was kind of aligned with the new mindset that I had really allowed me to start training in a way that I enjoyed and seeing the progress pretty quickly come. And, and then I learned that like, you know, quickly I, I started getting faster under that heart rate and started making more fitness progress under that heart rate. And it started to feel good. And I started to get more energy. And so that was kind of the wheel that kept spinning that 
the one thing we all want to get from exercise and fitness is we want to feel better. Hmm. And a lot of times when we're training too hard or we're, we're pushing too hard too much, we don't feel as good. And so we stop or we, or we, we fall off the wagon or we burn out, but this was just making me energized. And I was working toward a goal. I dropped, you know, $750 on an Ironman competition that I didn't know how to do yet. So there was that accountability piece. So a couple of things I think that really helped me were recognizing was finding a training regimen that I really enjoyed, which was the easy aerobic fitness. Cause I hate going fast and I hate pushing hard, but easy aerobic fitness mixed with the variability swimming, biking, and running, which was, you know, highly variable and having an achievement oriented goal, something that would, something that was a bit scary to me, but would be so fulfilling if I accomplished that. And that was the Ironman. So once I had that down, uh, that, that was the motivation to just keep going and practice the discipline that I wanted. I love it. I, love it. It's like I was smiling throughout. I was just like, <laughs> it's great to see somebody else who's gone through that and to see somebody that can be so honest about it and because re- that will help so many people to show that you know, you're not going to be somebody that drinks and smokes and all that all the time. If you want to change, you can do it. It's not going to be the easiest journey, but you need to find and build it slowly, put in, like make it a consistent practice. And, you know, you talk about in the book about, like, you have chapters like RIP cheeseburgers. You know, I love that yeah. kind of, you make it fun and enjoyable. You know, there's one where you're talking about having to convince your wife that Iron Man is, it's possible. It's a good idea. You know, how do you start making people who probably associate you with drunk Adam, fan of the party Adam, how do you get them to go, no, I'm going to make this change. I'm going to go and do Iron Man. How do you convince people and yourself that you're, you can do more, that you can be this version of Adam that you want to be. Did you struggle with yeah. that? Oh, I did a lot, yeah. Um, and I ended up having to, to really show them because that was it was something that was so out of character for me that I didn't want to tell anybody at first. I didn't want to... I, I didn't want to share with everybody what my, what my dream was or what my goal was, because even I thought it was ridiculous. And mm. I give a lot of that, that credit to my, my wife, who was the one person I told, but she was the one that, you know, kind of lit the fire to say, oh yeah, yeah, you should do that. Because when I told her that, that, that whole chapter on how to convince your wife that an Iron Man is a good idea was all about me being worried that if I told anybody, even her, that she would laugh me out of the room and say, no, 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 that's, that's not for you. Why don't you start with a 5k or do, you know, that that's, that's more your speed. Plus I need you here to help take care of the kids. And, but she was so absolutely supportive and so without a, without a beat saying, you know, yeah, you should do it because I know you can, and I believe in you. It was uh, that was a powerful foot motivator for me and almost a, Oh shit, I got to do it now. Uh, you know, so, but for everybody else for like, you know, say my parents or my family or um, people that, that I worked with, I didn't want to share it because I was afraid that, you know, I would kind of get laughed out of the room or, you know, that, that they would say that. But as I continued to train and as I continued to work toward it, I mean, the results started to show themselves. I started to, you know, lose weight. I started to gain more fitness. I started to have more energy. They started to see me go on lunch runs and, they would start asking me what I'm doing. And then I would start to, as I, as I felt ready, I started to tell people a little bit more, but I think one of the most intimidating points in my, in my journey, and I think it is maybe for a lot of people that are starting out with fitness is going into that, that room, whether it be a bike shop for the first time or a gym for the first time. Hmm. And you, you feel like everybody in there is judging you. 
You know, you feel like what's, what's this newbie doing in here? I mean, I'm just going into the bike shop to buy things. I think they want my money. <laughs> so I shouldn't feel that way, but you know, but, but you have this sensation of, I don't know anything. I'm so such a novice that I'm afraid of what other people are going to think of me. And that's one of the more powerful and difficult things to get over at the very beginning. But it is one of those things where you do just have to do it. You have to put, you have to be willing to put yourself outside of your comfort zone uh, to be able to, to be able to grow. And did you find that initial time you walked in and bought, you know, your first wetsuit, your, you bought your first bike. Did you find that the anxiety was there or did you find that it was kind of pushing you on? It was kind of saying, instead of looking at it as a negative, you were going like a mate that was kind of going, come on, leading you in, you know, were mm-hmm. you using it as part of like your anxiety superhero at that point? It, at that point, not not really because I was, I was, uh, I, I, I was, my anxiety was more pushing me out the door and saying, yeah, you don't, you don't want to go in there. But mm-hmm. at least at that time, I recognized that it was telling me the wrong thing. And that at least now opposite action is, is one of the better approaches I can use to, to combat that. Whatever my brain's telling me that is trying to push me into comfort, I should do the opposite. And so if it's telling me don't go in that shop because it's scary and people are going to laugh at you. I should go into the shop and just start asking questions. What's the worst that could happen? And then I realized that once I was in there, they were super helpful. You know, they were, they, they welcome beginners. And that's what I discovered from the entire community was that, that it's so welcoming, so supportive that it was easy to get involved on that, on that front. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a challenge at that first stage to, to get past the anxiety and walk in the door. Because I, I know that feeling when you, you, you know, you're kind of going, <laughs> I don't want to go in. No, no, no. They'll laugh at me. But it's like in the gym. It's like in any sports shop. They love you coming in because asking questions, getting people involved with the sport. You know, it's yeah. brilliant for them. It's a training partner. It's it's a sale. It's a whatever. You know, there's so many amazing things. And they want mm-hmm. people involved in sport. I mean, I can't believe we've been talking for 55 minutes already. I feel like it's been five <laughs> minutes. Like, this is where I struggled with you because – there was a whole addict to athlete section. And then there was like, oh, but I need to do a second one because we want to talk about the actual training and his coaching and stuff like that. But I mm-hmm. loved the bit where you talk about in the race when you're standing there before the cannon and you're looking around and, you know, you very beautifully kind of like write the scene of, of the race. And mm-hmm. then you talk, um, where is it? You, I love the line when you said, I swam through fear, biked with my brain, and now I was running with my heart while you were describing the race, it felt like the transition from the addict to the athlete. Like it really kind of mirrored the change in yourself. Do you, Mm -hmm. at the time before the race, did you have a ritual that you were going through or were you thinking, God, how far have I come? All the amazing things you've done to that point. Yeah. I think, yeah, my ritual uh, was primarily paralyzing fear and (laughs) no, it was, uh, it, it was, it was always a, a um, uh, I think the yeah, pre-race ritual really just involves that breathing like aspect of just making sure that I'm breathing and recognizing that in this present moment, I've done everything I can to be right where I'm at hmm. and that I'm, that I'm as ready as I'll ever be and that I'm surrounded by people that are feeling this energy. And by nature, I'm a, I'm a very empathic person. It, it is one of my anxiety superpowers <laughs> and 
And so feeling, and that's one of the things that I love about the sport is before I leave for the race, you know, uh, when I'm at home packing up my stuff or I'm at the hotel packing up my stuff and getting ready to go to the race, I'm a nervous wreck. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 you know, anxious and I'm nervous. I'm afraid that I'm going to get swallowed up by a whale out in the water or whatever. But uh, all that irrational fear is in my brain. But the second I walk into transition, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by that nervous but excited energy. It just becomes, it, it just becomes this, it's hard to describe. It's just this amazing feeling of, of joy and appreciation and gratitude for where I am right now and where I was, you know, because regardless of what happens, if I do get swallowed by a whale or, or whatever happens that what I've, what I've come from and where I'm at now is a miracle and I'm on borrowed time because of it. And that, that there's just a lot to be grateful for in that, in that moment and in, in living in that present moment and in that transition and in, in that pre-race energy, I'm forced to come to that appreciation, which is one of the most beautiful things in life. And then I, you know, when the cannon goes off and when I'm, when I'm looking around, the anxiety kind of drifts away and I am just now doing this thing that transcends uh, you know, life itself and transcends all that we think we are. And then we become something new at every finish line. I love how it's like in the book, it's almost like you were shot away from your anxiety at that point. You know, when you hear that cannon, mm-hmm. you're just going in and, you know, you think you're in a scene where there's bodies everywhere, there's arms and legs kicking around the place. <laughs> if people are, you know, combating for positions where most people would be going, oh my, oh my, I need to get out of this. You were like focused in this. You were thinking, where am I in the race? And, oh, wait, I could actually be in the lead here. I could be in, you know, like I love the journey and it mirrors your own personal journey. Like Mm -hmm. in your YouTube videos, you have such a supportive family and you do an amazing like sketches in there. How did becoming a father change you? Did it help with anxiety? Because there's scenes where you're talking about your kids sleeping outside because you've got your pain room, you've got your meditation room. You know, there's all these sort of funny (laughs) sketches you do. Your daughter yeah. telling you to go and put clothes on because you're walking around in a speedo, so you stick your race hat on. You know, it's all these like really funny things. Actually, how you know did it change you? Do you think? Because I love the scene at the end of your first race where you start falling to your daughter and you're hugging her, and you can see the mm-hmm. love and the you know that family unit. Like they count all your races, they do all these amazing things. You've got such a beautiful family. How do you think that changed you as a person? You know, what advice oh, would it- you give to new dads? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, uh, I, I would, uh, yeah, well, it definitely changed me. I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sober when I had the, when I had my kids, but fortunately they haven't seen me drunk or don't remember me drunk. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for that because I've been able to foster a relationship, you know, with them since I've been sober, that has been, that has been amazing. And, um, and I, I, tr- I think that if there's any advice I can offer new parents, it's, it's that, um, you know, it, it's, I, we all want to set a good example for our kids. We do. And I think it's important that we don't try to set a perfect example for our kids that, that I, I don't want to come across as, as perfect. I don't want to come across as, I'm doing this thing and and you need to do it too. And, and, and recognizing that, that one of the most important things that we can do as parents is, is, is foster that individuality 
in a healthy way and allow them to grow, allow them to make the mistakes and, and pursue what they want to do. And, and I'm, I'm, I, it's one area where I wish I could, I could be better to be honest is, is be a, be a really, and it's one thing I'm striving to constantly do is be a better father. And I feel like I, 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 I want to, you know, continue to pursue how to be, how to be better at that. Um, and, uh, um, and it's one of those fears. And, and like, I've always mentioned that anxiety is always with me. I, I, I live with it. And it's one of those anxieties that I'm always living with now. That's different than what it was before. What before I had kids is now I have that anxiety is, is how am I failing my kids today? And, you know, that's, that's, I know that that may be an irrational fear because as, as long as I'm there for them, as long as I'm supporting them in whatever ways I can, uh, then I'm, I'm, I'm doing good, but I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that it's, it's, it's bit, it's a challenge for me to really rationalize that and, 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 and get past the fear that I have for them while staying open-minded for who they can become. That's an amazing answer. I mean, it's, I think that comes across is that, you know, you're feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm failing them. Oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And, you know, am I, am I a good dad where, you know, you're probably so motivational to them, you're inspirational. And, you know, you're involving them in your hobbies, you're showing them like competing and you're showing them like that, you know, there's nothing that they can't come to talk to you about, you know, that mm. you can get help, you can change your life, you know, you're, you're going to help so many people, like they should give this to kids to show them how, you know, you can start on a bad journey and you can change your life. And I think that's something like, you know, I can see, I know yourself, like when you struggle with it in your mind, you think, Am I a good person? Am I doing this? But when you stop and look back and go, holy hell, look at what I've come. You know, you should be super proud of yourself for what you've done, for this amazing Thank journey you. and for getting to write it down. Was that the motivation for the book? Was it to kind of come to peace with it, to a cathartic, I'm just going to write this out? Or did you want to help people? What was the idea behind shifting gears? It was a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I wanted, I certainly wanted to write it, write it down. And I, I had the idea to write a book about that before I ever qualified for the Ironman world championship, just to, uh, you know, to share with people that, that I, 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 I see a lot of books. I see a lot of, of promotion for people that are, you know, that may have had an athletic background that have done exceptional things talking about in their memoirs, you know, about, about that. Mm -hmm. And, what I don't see as much of is, is, is people talking of real people, you know, people that are, that are average, that, that, you know, might be living day to day and, and just trying to get through life, um, talking about, you know, how they experience their anxiety and, 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 and how they level up to something that was exceptional. And that's something that I wanted to, when I set out to qualify for a world championship, before ever doing any, before ever even doing an Ironman or a triathlon, uh, that was one thing that I wanted to experiment on myself. Really, was can an average person, you know, can they achieve this? Can they achieve really the epitome of of the sport or epitome of something that they never thought was possible? Hmm. And the answer is unequivocally yes, because if I can do it, if I can do something like get sober, and that's where I learned that the first time, because I never thought that I'd be able to get sober. And, but I learned that the first time that when I got sober, I, wow, if I can do this, anybody can do it. 
And the same thing I learned with something like Ironman triathlon or what, or, or maybe CrossFit for people, it may be playing a, a musical instrument or, or, uh, you know, starting a business, whatever it may be that it is absolutely possible and it's not going to be easy, but it is possible. And if it, if it's that much of a burning desire in each of them, then, then, then it's worth pursuing. Cause there's a line where you say, I actually had to where you said, um, people are saying, maybe I could win this. And you said, they didn't know that I had already won as I had transformed my life. And I thought mm-hmm. that was so beautiful that it was, you had gone through this journey and it didn't matter if you won or lost you had made this change you had changed you had lost an addiction you had built hobbies that were going to change you know that you had changed your relationship become a better father you had become fitter you had given up your bad habits and you were writing out this thing that's going to help so many people and it blew me away when it because i get a lot of these and i was reading it going this guy this is i'm definitely having him on like this is amazing this is so You know, it's life changing for people, especially those who are sitting there going, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve better. You know, I'm just going to keep drinking. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what, like you're saying, it's that you can change. You can make that change. What would you want people reading it to? How would you want them to use the book? That's that's exactly. I mean, you, you summarized it very well, that I really want people in this book to experience hope. I want, I'm hoping that anybody who may feel a sense of hopelessness, and there is a lot of that right now out there, hmm. and we're seeing it so much. And I just, I want people to to realize that the changes that they individually can make and that we're, are within their control and by letting control of the, the things that, that they can't, that they can make dramatic changes and that, that there is hope even when you're feeling at your absolute lowest. And I felt the absolute lowest. If I had made the other decision while I was sitting in the jail cell, none of this, none of what I experienced would have ever happened. But look at the miracle that has happened with my life beyond making the other decision. And, um, you know, one of the things that I love about Ironman or triathlon in particular is unlike any other sport, you know, in any other sport you have, you have clear winners and losers and, and, you know, clear standings, all that kind of stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and certainly on the pro levels, you have that in, in, in triathlon, but one of the greatest things that I recognize in this sport that is, that is true of, of exactly what you just said. And, um, they, that, that when you see the first place finisher cross the finish line, they're the happiest person on the planet. They just won this race They're Of course they're happy. They're, they're excited. And then fast forward to the very last finisher of that race, the fin- the finisher that just crosses the finish line right at the cutoff time, who just barely makes it in many, many, many hours after that first place finisher. They are exactly the same level of happiness. They're exactly at the same level of joy because they've both achieved what they've set out to achieve. They've won their race. And, you know, as, as you said, uh, kind of summarize that, that quote is having already won anybody that's been the final finisher at a race knows that they, they have, uh, they've already won their race before they even got to the finish line. That was just a victory lap for them. So I would challenge anyone to, to find, to find their finish line, uh, whatever may be difficult, whatever incites that, that little twinge of fear that make, that forces them into a choice between going into comfort or going into, to challenge Mm -hmm. and make that choice to go into the challenge that will produce growth and and find that finish line and then make that finish line a new starting line for additional growth because that's how 
that's that's where fulfillment comes from is that continuous growth i love that i love the way you write uh, you mentioned that in the book it's like the finish line was a starting line for the next chapter mm-hmm. and you know you've it's almost like the transitions in the race were the transitions through your life you know and through your change and now you're this amazing guy who's helping other people through this change and motivating them and it's, it's an amazing journey you should be immensely proud of yourself of how far you've come what you're doing and inspiring others i'm really disappointed to actually say that we're over our time i really would love to chat to you for another few hours you know i find you so easy sure. to talk to and so inspiring but until we can get around to it what would you want people to take from this you know what would you want uh like a go home message, a summarization, or a point you would want them to take from this. Yeah, that there, that there, that if there's a feeling of hopelessness now, is there's a feeling like there's no way out. That there absolutely is. That there's always help. That there's always community. And I would, ch- I would encourage anybody to 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 look at that and and try and find that community of of, of help, and um, and to really to really ask yourself, you know, what, what is it that I can do that, that really does, you know, cause that, that, that little bit of twinge of fear that, that would, you know, challenge me it, to go outside of my comfort zone and, and find that and, uh, and just be good people. I know we're going through a really tough, tough time and, and, and it's being amplified with everything that we see on the news and, and in social media, but, but it starts with each of us to just, just be, you know, to just be good people. And it's something I fail at a, a lot, <laughs> but I think as long as we try and we keep it at the front of my mind, we'll, we'll, we'll gravitate in the right direction. Well, we're definitely around too, because I've, I've had an amazing yeah. time. I really hope it's, you've enjoyed it as much as I have, but for people who want to find out more about you, apart from buying the book and stuff like that, how can we connect with you? How can we watch you race? How can we get coached by you? How can we just kind of like, you know, is there a way we can communicate with you and people who are going through similar can ask for help or kind of, you know, recommendations you would suggest for people, you know, as your so- social media, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, so my website is adamhilltry.com. That's adamhilltri.com. And uh, there, all the links to everything that I do are on there, um, including coaching, speaking engagements, the book, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, if you want to find me on social media, on, uh, on Instagram, I'm Adam Hill try. And, uh, and I think you can find me on Facebook as well. And I'm, I'm always happy to connect. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.